Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, please turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 12. And if you don't have a Bible, it should be printed on the back of your bulletin so you could follow along there. And if you are able, please stand as we, we read this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, the, the flesh is of no help at all. It's the spirit that gives life. And you also say that the words that you speak, they are spirit and they are life. And God, we need your spirit. We need your life this morning. And so as we look at your words, we just pray that uh, you would resurrect us, make us new, help us, shape us, change us. We give this time to you now. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, amen. You may be seated. Marguerite uh, and I were looking at the weather last night, and um, she's like, it's going to be like 68 or something. And she was like, wow, you can preach for hours. So if you have any complaints, please register them with my wife. Um, I had a, a good friend of mine who actually proposed recently, and I was... Uh, able to be at the proposal and uh, kind of help out in a small way. And so um, it's got me all nostalgic thinking back to the time many moons ago when I proposed to my own wife. Um, three years by many moons is what I mean. And some of you are scoffing now. But uh, three hard fault years ago. And, uh, you know, in our culture, when a man decides he wants to get married... He, he starts this process, this big process. He, he kind of starts it, you know, the first thing he has to do typically is find a ring. And to do that, he has to go back to school and master the five C's of every diamond. So wives, you may not know how educated your men are on diamonds. There are five C's for a diamond. There's clarity, cut, carrot, color, and cost. You could also add a sixth C, which is can't believe that I'm actually doing this. I don't have enough net worth to purchase this thing, uh, period. But anyway, or a 7C, I must be crazy. What am I actually doing here? So I remember when I got Marguerite's ring and planned this, this engagement, and I wanted it to be a surprise for her. And it was actually really easy because we have two good friends who are wedding photographers, and so they, I got them in early on. And then Marguerite actually reached out to them and said, hey, you want to go shoot pictures sometime? So it was just perfect. Like Marguerite actually thought she planned it, you know, so she was totally stunned. But I had to wait about a week, you know, to, to you know, for the plan to like come to fruition. And so I had this ring and I put it in the safest place that I had back then, which was my sock drawer, of course. And, um, that ring just tormented me, you know. Every morning I, when I woke up, I would just go to the sock drawer and I would look at it. Be like, yeah, 
put it back in. And then the last thing I did every night before I went to bed, I would go and I would look at it and I'd put it back. You know, I can't wait to get rid of this thing. And then the day came and Marguerite was surprised. She said yes after I had to beg and plead on my knees, but she said yes. And, and then we entered into the whole process of planning a wedding and uh, trying to figure out all of that. And then the day came and we were finally married. And it was funny, the night before we got married, I think, Marguerite and I were talking, and I remember this conversation where we said, you know, we have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> we have no idea what we're signing up for. You know, I mean, isn't this crazy? And uh, marriage is one of those things that you, it's so funny, you have no idea what you're getting into until you get into it. And then the rest of your life, you're figuring out what is, what is this thing that I have done. In the Bible, the reason I bring up marriage is because marriage is actually one of the main metaphors that the Bible uses to describe what it means to be a Christian. You know, in the Bible, you become a Christian when your soul is wed, is married to God. It's, marriage is one of the main metaphors. And with that, the second would probably be adoption. You know, as you come to, to salvation and become a Christian, you are adopted into God's family. And one author writing on this said, you know, there's actually something about these metaphors. They each have two aspects to them a legal aspect, and a relational aspect. Uh, He writes, both of these metaphors include a legal aspect and a relational one. On the day, either relationship, that's marriage or adoption, on the day either relationship is legalized, you begin to possess the full rights and privileges of a spouse or a child. And then he says this, but it will take time, even years, for you to fully inhabit your new identity. It'll take years for you to fully inhabit your new identity. And I can attest to that as a married man, three years field experience, you know. I'm still learning what the heck does it mean to be a married person. In our culture, we put so much emphasis on all the stuff that happens up until the moment of marriage. But maybe our culture is a little bit less fascinated with everything that happens after the, the marriage, right? And I wonder if, as a church, I wonder if there could be something similar said that we spend a ton of time maybe thinking about how one becomes a Christian, how one is justified by faith through grace. They become a Christian, but do we talk about what does it actually mean? The rest of it, you know, to, to be a Christian, and I think that's what we see in our text this morning. In, in these verses, Paul shows us the what we've signed up for about being a Christian. He shows us what this marriage with God looks like. And so really quickly, I'll give you three Ps that we see Paul himself emphasize here. And the three points, each start with the letter P, are a project, a process, and a purpose. A project, a process, and a purpose. And so really quickly, let's just look at each of these uh, three. The first is a project. So notice in verse 11, it says, To this end, which could mean, you know, with everything in view we've discussed, which Adam has preached about, you know, 
this entire thing about the gospel, the Thessalonians were a church who were suffering persecution. They were wondering, where is God? Is God just? And, and Paul is saying, yes, God is just. In fact, he intends to repay everyone who persecutes you with justice at the final judgment. Those who do not know God, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. But those who do believe, they will marvel at Jesus when he comes. And so you've got this whole explanation of the gospel Paul unfolds. He says, with this in view, or to this end, we always pray for you. And then he says that our God may make you worthy of his calling. That our God may make you worthy of his calling. So God is making something. He's making us into something. You know, one business that's been booming in COVID uh, is Home Depot or Lowe's or any sort of, you know, like hardware store. You know, I, I don't know if you guys have tried to press into one of those uh, stores, but the parking lots are packed because everyone's got a DIY project of some sort or another they've been doing in the past couple of months. Well, according to this verse, we are God's project. We are God's DIY project. God is making us into something. So what is he making us into? Well, it says that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Now, to the careful reader of Thessalonians, as we all are, because we've been studying 1 Thessalonians and now 2 Thessalonians, this seems like a weird thing to say. I mean, we pray that our God may make you worthy. We would sort of think, is Paul praying for their salvation here? You know, make you worthy. Isn't that part of, part of the package of becoming a Christian? But we know from context that the Thessalonians are Christians. In fact, earlier in verse 3, you know, as Adam was preaching a week ago, you know, Paul is praising them that their faith is growing. The love they have for one another is growing. In the whole book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is, is, is rejoicing and giving thanks over their faith. So they are Christians, and yet Paul says, I'm praying that God may make you worthy. If they're Christians, why do they need to be made worthy? What if I told you that in the Bible, in several places in the New Testament, there, there is this tension. There are verses, true, and all these verses are totally true, verses like 2 Corinthians 5.17 which tell us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. So if you are in Christ, you are a brand new creation, the old has passed away. Or Colossians 1, uh, 21 through 22, which Daryl read this morning, which says, you once were alienated, hostile, doing evil, but he is now reconciled in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Or Ephesians 2, 5 through 6, which says we were dead in trespasses, but we were made alive. By grace you've been saved. He raised us up with him, and he has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know, so a brand new creation, holy, blameless, and above reproach, and seated in the heavenly places. These verses seem to say, we are good, you know. There is nothing left to be done here, you know. Keep, keep calm, carry on, no, nothing, nothing more to see here. But then there are verses like 1 John 1, 8, which say, if we say we have no sin, presently, if we, if we say that we are not having sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
Romans 7, which is kind of a debated passage, but Paul says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that's not the only place where Paul talks this way. In Philippians 3, 12 through 14, Paul says, not that I have already obtained it or am already perfect. I'm not already perfect, Paul says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I strain forward towards the prize. And so the question I think we have to ask is, which is it? right? That's what we want to ask. Are we seated in the heavenly places or are we trapped inside a body of death? Because those seem to be very different things. It might be helpful, and I don't know if I'll answer all these questions, but it might be helpful to think about the kind of three dimensions of our salvation. The Bible describes salvation as including justification, sanctification, and glorification right? And each of these three aspects of our salvation correspond to, and another three Ps, all the Ps this morning. Hope you like your Ps. Um, That was a really lame joke, but three Ps, penalty, power, and presence. The penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. So track with me. Justification saved us as Christians. If you are a Christian, justification saved us from the penalty of sin, which is to say, the wrath of God we deserve, hell forever and ever, what we just read in Second Thessalonians, suffering the punishment of eternal destruction, conscious suffering, and something worse than fire for millions and billions of years with no end. That penalty, the wrath of God, was placed on Jesus, on the cross, once and for all, done. That's what it means when Paul argues, you have been saved by faith, through grace, not a result of works, no one can boast. So justification, we're saved from the penalty of sin. But sanctification is we are being saved from the power of sin. The sin that clings so closely, we are being saved from it. And then one day, glorification in heaven, we will be saved ultimately from even the presence of sin. There won't even be a possibility of sinning. We will live in a sinless world, a sinless universe. And it's important to see these distinctions because that's why Paul says in Philippians, he says, I don't have it yet. I'm not perfect. He says, I press on to make it my own. He says, because Christ Jesus made me his own. Not so that Christ Jesus will make me his own. The distinction is everything. Paul is not saying, I press on in order to, uh, and so that Jesus will make me his own. But he says, because Jesus has made me his own, that is why I press on. The way to say it is, as a Christian, when you come to Christ, you have a brand new identity, a brand new identity. And now we enter into a process, right, of this, this makeover, of, of being conformed to the new identity that we have. There's a movie called The Princess Diaries. Maybe you've heard of it which I, ha- I haven't seen this movie because I'm a strong, dignified, and self-respecting man, but my wife has seen this movie, and I know the general plot, I think. So there's this, there's this girl, Anne Hathaway plays her, and uh, she's kind of a, 
nerdy girl, I guess, you know, bad hair, lame looking. Um, and don't you love it when celebrities like play the loser in movies and like these celebrities like in their loser form are like far more glorious than the rest of us, you know. But anyway, so Anne Hathaway is somehow a loser. And then she realizes that she is actually not a loser, but she is the princess of uh, Geneva or Genovia or uh, somewhere, you know, John Calvin's her uncle or something. She, she's royalty of some sort of island and she goes to the island and she's a princess, but even though she's in identity, a true princess royalty, she has to now have this makeover so that she can be conformed into whatever a princess is. We aren't who we thought we are. That's what it means. When you come to Christ, your new identity is far greater than you can imagine. In fact, we are royalty. We're sons of the king of the universe, as crazy as it sounds, and we need a makeover, right? Another, another angle to come at it is um, kind of along the DIY theme is, have you ever seen the show Extreme Home Makeover? You know, they would they take this bungalow or something, they come in and they renovate the whole house and they surprise the people with the house. C.S. Lewis picked up on that imagery when he said, describing this project, God's big project, C.S. Lewis says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed, be, needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. The first thing that we see is, as we become a Christian, when you, become, when you come to Christ, you become God's project. He is making you into something. So what does that look like? What is the process? Let's move to that. We've seen the project, but what is the process? Paul uh, goes on, he says, our God may make you worthy of his calling, and then he says, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So Paul kind of brings up these two, these two things involved in this process of God making us over, right? Of making us worthy, of, of, of building us up into this palace. And the first is, may, he may fulfill every resolve for good, and the second is every work of faith. It's interesting, um, and extremely important here to know who is doing what. So notice, Paul is praying that God may make us worthy and that God may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. You know, it's by his power. And we see again in, in 12, it's according to the grace of our God. And yet, it's totally clear, especially in the Greek, and even in the English, it's clear that it's our resolve for good. It's our work of faith. Isn't that interesting? So it's, it's our resolve, it's our work, and yet it is God who is 
doing it. So you see at least two things in this process. The first is that it's all about grace. It is all about God's grace. Uh, A friend of mine and I have been uh, trying to study some medieval theology. I told him I would try to work some of that in here, so maybe I can. But perhaps you've heard of Thomas Aquinas, uh, circa 1300, 1400, I'm bad with numbers, but Aquinas is considered the doctor of the, the Roman Catholic Church. He is kind of the guy, you know, he's the, uh, he is the, the John Calvin to us is the Thomas Aquinas to them, and he systematized a lot of Roman Catholicism theology, and people like John Calvin and Martin Luther are not very kind to Thomas Aquinas because they disagree on one key issue, which is what is justification, and I bring this up, not to pick on Catholics, but to, but to point out something that all of us deal with, and this is the mistake of Roman Catholicism, which almost makes it truly a totally different religion, is that it blends justification and sanctification. And this is, it's going to have to be just really kind of a fast run, flyby of this, but the view of Roman Catholicism justification, we believe in imputed righteousness. They believe in infused righteousness. So, and forgive me for this being simple. I'm not trying to make it silly, but in Roman Catholicism, when you are baptized, you receive initial justification. It's like you have a full health bar, you know? And then as you sin, committing mortal sins or venial sins, your health bar decreases. But as you cooperate with God's grace, your righteousness health bar kind of fills back up. And if you die with a 100% health bar, you go to heaven. If you die with less than 100, you go to purgatory to make up the difference. If you're Mother Teresa, then you've got this extra righteousness, which goes to this treasury of merit. I mean, and, but, the, but the main issue is they believe that your justification and your sanctification happen simultaneously, which is as you, merit, as you do good deeds and do good works, you are actually meriting a, a, a righteousness of your own, which will somehow get you in. And now, of course, you can imagine Luther and Calvin turning in their graves as I speak because their whole point is that, no, we have an alien righteousness, a forensic justification, which is outside of us. It's not my righteousness, it's the righteousness of Christ. And this is where Luther hammers down on, we are justified by the work of Christ, not as a result of our works whatsoever. It is all by the grace of God. It is a free gift. Even the faith it takes to believe is a gift, right? But what about sanctification? I mean, at least, at least the Catholics understood, and maybe people are too hard on Thomas Aquinas, but at least he understood that as a Christian, his life was going to look different, not just his decision to become a Christian, but the rest of his life, the works were going to change him into something. Calvin writes about this. He says, first, we have to know that Paul does not ascribe to the grace of God merely the beginning of our salvation, but all departments of it. The whole progress of our salvation is nothing but the pure grace of God, justification, sanctification, glorification, no merit of ours mixed in. Calvin even says that uh, to, for our faith to reach perfection, it would, it would be like building a tower that reached up into the clouds 
on the ocean because he says we are not less fluid than water. So it is impossible, it is impossible, this whole process is impossible apart from God's grace. In fact, as we see, it is God who by his power fulfills these desires for good and and these works of faith. But notice that Paul says your desires change as a Christian, but also your works change. The, The desire, the resolve for good is not complete until it is produced as a work. And so we see it's all by grace, but we also see in this process that it takes a lot of work. And that is that is not a heretical thing to say. Our justification, no. All by the grace of God and our sanctification, all by the grace of God. And yet, we are called to this work. One commentator said, faith is not passive, but it is ceaselessly active, appropriating God's blessings and using God's power for God's service. And by the way, this all just squares really well with how Jesus describes our salvation. When he says in Matthew 11, verse 12, he says, from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, Jesus says, the violent take it by force. Which I understand that to mean that as we press into the kingdom of heaven, we do it with a sort of of violence, with a sort of diligence that we're, we're moving after God, we're moving after the goal of our salvation. Or Jesus in, in Luke 13, 24, when he said, someone asked Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Jesus replied, and he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Jesus says, strive, strive to enter through the narrow door. That word in Greek is agonizo, strive which you don't need to be a Greek nerd to know. That's where we get agonize from. You could translate that verse as strain every nerve to enter. And so this process is all of God's grace, and yet it involves our work. And maybe that's why in Philippians, Paul was writing to refute some people who said that they were perfect and they had arrived. And that's why Paul points out you know, his stat sheet, and then he says, by the way, guys, I haven't arrived. I'm still straining ahead. And he says, work out your own salvation, for it is God who works in you. This is not working for your salvation. This is working from your salvation. The faith that saves, Adam has said, the faith, uh, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It is always accompanied by works. What are these works? What what do the works of faith look like? I would just offer up a few. Uh, I mean, in the passage, we see prayer, right? Paul says, this is why we pray for you. And that's not just a spiritual thing that Christians do, like say, like, oh, I'll pray for you. According to Paul, his use of prayer here seems to imply, we pray for you, that God may make you worthy. So Paul is believing that his prayers are part of this process of making us worthy. I think prayer is one. I think the word of God is one. It doesn't, doesn't it seem to be that in 1 Thessalonians, Paul said, we thank God that you received our word as, as what it really is, not the word of man, but the word of God. And even earlier as I was praying and thinking about it, Jesus himself said, you know, the flesh is no help at all. 
It's the spirit that gives life. And the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. And then maybe just another would be, when were the Thessalonians hearing all this? As they gathered in a church and this letter was read to them. You know, that is the reason, that's the reason we gather and we have someone stand up here and preach every Sunday is because, not, not because we just need a Christian-flavored motivational speech to get through the week, but because we really believe that God can change us as we hear Adam and Daryl and Blair or whoever it is preaching, God can change us in that moment. He, and doesn't it happen to you while you listen to a sermon? You're thinking, how is, where in my life? Where, what's, what's the next room in the house God is gonna renovate? God begins to stir it up in us. He, he begins to change us as we pray, as we come and as we listen to the word preached and as we read the Bible. And it's a work of faith. I'm going long, sorry, but I mean, my wife said I could, but the, the, the work of faith, you know, I just want to say, you know what, maybe we're, we're looking for some massively awesome thing to do for Jesus, and he's just looking for us to do the small things he's always told us to do. Like, open our Bibles and meet with him. Like, get on our knees and talk to him. And doesn't that take faith? It takes faith. It really does to carve out 10 minutes and sit down and open the book and just believe that God can actually make these words mean something to us, especially for those of us who are like, oh, I've read this so many times. It does take faith. But God, through his grace, will work through that. So that's the project, the process. And lastly, what's the purpose of all of this? What's the, what's the reason for this big project and all of this work and straining and agonizing, is it really, really worth it? So Paul says, look at verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. So here's your twofold purpose, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Now when he says the name of our Lord Jesus, he's meaning the reputation of Jesus, the, the fame of Jesus. In, in essence, he's saying that the name of Jesus may be glorified. You know, Keller has his speech on glory and how it means weightiness or, or heaviness. You know, but the, the idea is that we could make Jesus famous, that his glory could just be made known, his reputation. And notice where this happens. Notice the location, right? A friend of mine um, uh, and uh, his wife, they, they were celebrating their anniversary recently, and she wanted to build a table. Why? I don't know, but that's what, you know, the wife wanted. Happy wife, happy life. So he goes to Lowe's, and he buys, like, some sort of table saw so they can build this table together. And then I ask him, I'm like, Luke, uh, where are you going to do that, man? Like, he lives, <laughs> lives in an apartment, like a 900-square-foot apartment on the second floor. You know, it's like, where are you going to use that thing? You know, he's like, I don't know, but my wife wanted it. <laughs> so he won, the, he won the war. He might lose a few battles, but he won the war. Where does this happen is the question. Well, look at what it says. So that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified, plot twist, in you, in your life. This is where this happens. The goal of your life as a Christian is to become a container of the glory of Jesus so that you're a living image 
of God. That's why it says we're created in the image of God. And these kings used to set up all of these images all around their kingdom so that people would see them and, and think about their glory. And it was only the kings who were the image of God. If you lived in ancient Egypt, Pharaoh was the image of God. What Pharaoh did, God did. That was kind of the idea. And then Moses comes along and says, no, no, no. We are all created in God's image. Every last one of us. That's why he made us. The purpose of our life as a Christian is, is to draw others like a magnet to, to worship Jesus through the way we live so that people actually see through us and they see Jesus himself in the things we do. Your life is meant to be a trophy of the gospel. And so that begs the question, does the way you live draw people up into worship of Jesus? I um, was thinking um, about how sad it was recently, Chadwick Boseman, who plays the Black Panther, the actor, um, died pretty suddenly. He had a battle with cancer, we learned. And um, in the never-ending you know, string of 20, hashtag 2020 events, man, this one hurt. You know, I, was, I love the Black Panther next to Spider-Man, probably my favorite superhero, but Spider-Man takes the top place for me. But still... I mean, as far as the future of Marvel movie, movies go, I was thinking the Black Panther was their bread and butter. But, you know, it's sad and tragic. I don't mean to make light of it, his passing. It was beautiful, though, to see how many people were just speaking up and talking about how this actor, the role he played, it, it really took the Black Panther, who I really didn't know super well before the movie, and just really kind of glorified, made weighty, made important that hero in the Marvel Universe, right? And not only did Chadwick Boseman playing this role make this character, the Black Panther, kind of glorified, but then you even see how many people were impacted by what that movie meant to them and, and how, how many people knew that it was more than just a character, but they were being changed by his performance playing this role. It's kind of a Kind of a silly illustration, but in one sense, we all get to act the part of Jesus. There's not just one Jesus actor on, on, the, on the scene. Jesus may never walk into your office, but you will. Jesus may never sit at your desk, but you will. Jesus may never, he may, may never eat dinner with your family, but you will. And if you are playing the role, you can bring Jesus into all of these areas we can make him famous and glorify his name and if that doesn't excite you it might not why why doesn't that thrill you to think that this is why you are a christian you know in our culture right now there's so many things saying this is what it means to be a christian it means that you you vote this way or you don't vote this way or you wear this shirt or you don't wear this shirt or you tweet that or you don't tweet that and i'm here to tell you that is not what it means to be a christian being a christian is not i'll do these moral things or i'll i'll choose these parties all those things are important or whatever but the reason you are a christian is so that people can see jesus through everything you do that is why you are a christian and then notice it says, and you in him. And now here's where we'll have to hang it up. But notice that it says, so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. And then it says, and so that you may be glorified in him. 
Now that is just next level stuff. What does he mean? John Calvin is no amateur theologian and he's a pretty careful guy. But he says this, the purpose of the gospel is to make us sooner or later like God. Indeed, it is so to speak, a kind of deification. Now that's John Calvin. You know, that's not some you know, weird prosperity preacher guy. That is John Calvin saying the purpose of the gospel is to make us like God. It is a kind of deification. What does this mean? Not just that Jesus is glorified in us, but that we are glorified in him. I think it simply means Jesus wants to share. He wants to share his glory. He wants us to have a a part in it. I'm reminded, it's funny the things you remember, but I remember being uh, in preschool and I had two friends, Justin and Max, and we were playing in the sandbox and uh, Max had this truck and Max wanted my truck and I did not want to share my truck with him, but he took it and so I I threw sand in his eyes because that seemed like the right thing to do. And then I had to sit and time out, which was forever. But thank goodness God is not like me. Thank good God is not like us. He, he's not just out to harvest glory from us or something. He wants to actually share his glory with us. It's kind of like the moon, you know, which is really just a big rock in the sky. There's nothing super special about it. Maybe there was some volcanic activity or something, but whatever. It's basically just a rock. But have you ever seen the full moon in July? It's called a strawberry moon or... In England, it's called a honeymoon. It's actually where we get the, the, the phrase honeymoon from. Because the, the moon, in, full moon in June, it can have this kind of orange glow to it. And you just look at it, and it's massive. And like that thing is, it's brighter than any star you've ever seen from Earth. But the moon's just a rock. It's just reflecting the glory of the sun that comes upon it. It's kind of like that with God. We, by our position... Right, right. By justification, he puts us up there. Our position is we are here and we have a part to play and our sanctification is more and more of God's light shining on us. And something counterintuitive happens. We don't lose ourselves as, as God shares his glory. We become more of who we actually are. You're not gonna lose your identity. You're gonna find it. The, you see more of the moon. The more the sun comes to it, the more the light comes to it. The one danger to avoid is is where do we try to get our glory from? And I'll leave you with this. Jesus says in John 5, pretty scathing remark. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus said that. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? May it never be said of us that we were more interested in the glory that we could have right here and now from those around us than the glory that comes from Jesus. Pray with me. Jesus, we just want to say thank you that you are a glorious God and you created us for your glory, sons and daughters, and yet you in your amazing goodness, have made a decision to share your glory 
with us, to, to wrap us up in it, so that as you are glorified, our glory is connected to you, and we give it all the glory to you, just to be a part of what you're doing in our world, in our lives, in eternity. God, it's so humbling. And God, you know how difficult it is. You walked this earth. You suffered things worse than us. So you're aware of what it's like to live through 2020. You knew that millions of years before 2020 ever came to be. And God, we just ask for your help. Help us to not be drawn to try to harvest our own glory from, from others. But God, give us hearts that seek the glory that comes from you. God, help us to desire you more and more. And God, we pray that you would. We thank you that you have saved us, that you've called us, you've justified us. And God, we pray that you would make us worthy of this call so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified. We pray that in your holy name.